This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we welcome Professor Karen Woody from the WNL School of Law to the Everything Compliance Gang. Topics for this week's discussion include Karen talking about the Wild West of cryptocurrency, Jay Rosen discusses the moral bankruptcy culture at Facebook and how the company can begin to come back from the abyss. Matt Kelly discusses the recent speech by SEC Director of Enforcement and what it may mean. Jonathan Armstrong looks at whistleblowing in the EU. Rants and shout outs, of course, follow the commentary. I know you will enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the latest edition to the now award-winning Everything Compliance podcast. In addition to having won a W3 award as one of the top uh, panel podcasts around, we are thrilled to announce uh, a new panelist, Karen Woody. So Karen's been a guest panelist with us before, and we've asked her to come on permanently. So Karen, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for joining our happy clan. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Jonathan Armstrong, what has been on your mind? Well, I've been looking at some developments in whistleblowing. I think whistleblowing is one of the most, uh, dealing with whistleblowers is one of the most challenging bits of the job for compliance officers. And if it's any comfort, it's also a real challenge for external counsel too. Whenever we get involved in looking at whistleblower issues. It's always quite complex. You've obviously got to take the whistleblower's complaints seriously, and you've got to try and look at them dispassionately. Uh, That whistleblower, of course, may be identified or may be anonymous or pseudonymous. And it's often a difficult balance, really, between, uh, you know, what weight do you give to the whistleblower's complaints. Um, And this is something that the uh, European Court of Human Rights has been looking at recently with a case from Luxembourg. And the case uh, concerns the LuxLeaks. For those of you who don't remember them, they were a set of leaks in 2014, which were about the, uh, let's just say, alleged practices of a big four accounting firm. And there were a number of whistleblowers who were employees of that accounting firm. And they said that the accounting firm had been uh, involved in various practices which didn't stand up to scrutiny. Now, Hallett was the second whistleblower, and I think that's quite important, to come out of this accounting firm. And he took some internal documents 
from the firm and he gave them to a journalist. As a result of doing that, the accounting firm sacked him. But more than that, he was prosecuted by the Luxembourg authorities in 2016 for a breach of uh, professional secrecy obligations that apply in Luxembourg. The Luxembourg uh, court said that the seriousness of the offence he had committed was greater than the public interest in protecting whistleblowers. He was sentenced to nine months in jail. That was a suspended sentence. He was fined a thousand euros and he had to pay damages to his employer, the accounting firm, although they, those damages were set only at one euro. Uh, he uh, appealed to the ECHR and his um, uh, appeal has just failed. The court decided that it was a good faith report, uh, but that there was harm to the accounting firm involved. And uh, the ECHR looked at the uh, increasing turnover and increase in headcount of the accounting firm, but they basically said that they weren't going to interfere with the Luxembourg court's findings. It, it's somewhat confusing because the uh, ECHR is a, is a European court and this matter was referred to them from the Luxembourg court because it was a matter of uh, European human rights law. Um, the Luxembourg court effectively uh, said that there was no uh, uh, the ECHR said that there was effectively no new information on which they could interfere. Now, my colleague Andre Bywater wrote on this case, and it's interesting that one of the court officials uh, connected with us on social media after this report uh, to point out that uh, there was now an appeal that had been lodged and we're obviously grateful for the court official, uh, you know, letting letting us know that. Uh, and the case will now go to the grand chamber of the ECHR, who might reach a different decision. But I think it's a somewhat troubling case for whistleblowers. Of course, it comes uh, at the time when the SEC have uh, just announced on uh, September 29th the two whistleblowers had been banned from the SEC system. These are individuals who seem to have made um, gratuitous nuisance-related uh, referrals to the SEC. They'd been told to stop but hadn't. But it seems to me that it just increases some of the complexities around whistleblowing, and it's hard not to have sympathy with the whistleblower in this case, who I think seems to have perhaps genuinely thought that he was exposing wrongdoing at a large uh, accounting firm. This whole discussion brings up several points that I wanted to raise with you. The first one is, is on the basic uh, <coughs> Luxembourg decision, is a cost-benefit analysis appropriate 
when you have a good faith whistleblower complaint, i.e. more harm to the uh, company who have been whistleblowed upon than uh, the potential good? Well, it's, it seems somewhat strange, doesn't it, to look at uh, whistleblowing in those terms. I think that it was a major factor in the court's reasoning that he was the second whistleblower. These concerns were already in the public domain. Uh, if he was the first whistleblower, maybe that equation would look different. But clearly, the court were looking at the potential harm to the uh, accounting firm versus the public interest, and the public interest was less with a second complainant who, it seemed, didn't add that much to the uh, complaint from the first whistleblower. So it could have been different if this was a unique whistleblower or Hallett was the first, not the second. But it does seem as if there is this balancing act. Now, of course, that's a really difficult balancing act for a corporation to imply internally. And my worry would be that some within corporations, if this case got more publicity, would think, ah, we can dismiss a whistleblower's um, allegations because it might do us harm. And there's not a lot of public interest in what we're doing behind closed doors. I think it would be unfortunate if the court's ruling buried legitimate complaints because a corporation somehow thought there was some internal test it could do to look at harm to itself. Uh, not to sound completely facetious, but every whistleblower potentially brings harm to a corporation. If I could uh, speak a little bit about one of the most recent FCPA enforcement actions involving WPP, uh, there were seven whistleblower complaints around their India operation. And uh, uh, why didn't WPP just employ this cost-benefit analysis? It's like, well, if we take this seriously, we might have to pay a fine. So yeah. our cost is higher than uh, the public benefit. I mean, that's about, I have to say, the most inane analysis for a whistleblower complaint uh, that you could ever come up with. And to have a judicial stamp of approval on this seems to me to be going down a, a very difficult path uh, for all of us. I think that's right. And I think these are cases that the appeal, uh, th this, these are considerations that the appeal court will certainly look at. I think it's important to say that it's, Europe is not anti-whistleblower in any way. We don't pay bounties as much as you do in the US to whistleblowers. There is a limited bounty program in the UK, but that's by no means widespread uh, across Europe. And it's important to remember that there are new EU whistleblowing rules that are going through the member states at the moment. The deadline is 17th December for uh, EU member states to implement new whistleblowing laws. Some of them already have draft laws on the table, which offer more protection to whistleblowers. Uh, the UK has always been different from the rest of Europe with laws to uh, protect uh, whistleblowers. Um, the protections that the EU directive introduces are already largely part of 
UK law and there's a specific code as well. And as I say, in some cases, relatively small bounties up to 100,000 sterling can be paid in the UK. So I don't think it's open season on whistleblowers. And I think in some respects, this uh, case has been unhelpful but it's some in some respects it's it's against the tide that is supporting whistleblowers in making legitimate concerns public the uh and it also brings up another area i wanted to explore with you a little bit which is the broader question of european court of justice justice vis-a-vis justice as perceived by the member states. And, and I understand that was one of the reasons that led to you your uh, departure from the EU. But if the European Court of Justice says that um, uh, Luxembourg's, if not preference for money laundering, their preference for abject privacy is not a value that we as the European Court of Justice hold, uh, isn't that really directly antithetical to the uh, a core value of its member state, uh, Luxembourg? Yeah, this is where uh, the European judicial system gets hideously complicated. But um, there's a difference between the European Court of Human Rights, the uh, ECHR, and the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, aka CJEU. They're sort of they're, they're two separate courts if you like one's looking at the human rights convention and one's looking at the uh, eu makeup i'm i'm sort of oversimplifying i'm sort of oversimplifying because it's hideously complicated and i don't know the full uh, <laughs> the full weeds of it so it's it's two separate systems the echr is looking at uh, human rights, and uh, we've had some very interesting human rights decisions from that court over the uh, years, including cases that have supported whistleblowing. There's a case involving the uh, UK police, for example, and a senior police officer who had concerns about the way in which uh, her police service was was run. So I don't think we could necessarily say that either the ECJ or the ECHR were anti-whistleblower. And I don't think we could necessarily say that either of those courts were pro-Luxembourg. Uh, the caveat being, of course, that the judges are based in Luxembourg. Um, but, um, but I think it is difficult to fit this judgment from the ECHR alongside other judgments that have looked uh, at uh, human rights particularly, and particularly freedom of expression and the need to allow people to raise concerns about things that are happening in the, uh, you know, in the wider compliance space. So I wonder, and this is a, a, a ponder, not a fact, if that's why the uh, court official was very quick to respond to our social media cases and say, let's not go overboard. The case is already subject to appeal. Watch this space. 
Well, I think uh, that's a great way to end your segment, Jonathan, because I think we'll certainly be watching this space. So, Mr. Rosen, uh, lots happening in California, although a little bit north of southern, sunny Southern California, where it never rains. What has been on your mind this week? Well, I think, like most people, uh, Facebook has been on my mind. And uh, Facebook, unfortunately, is no stranger to Capitol Hill. Over the years, its executives have repeatedly been hauled in for hearings amid the social media giant's various scandals. Let me just recount a few. Cambridge Analytica, Russian influence campaigns, privacy violations, the use of the platform to spread hate, fake news, and even facilitate genocide, secret data sharing agreements, security bugs, shady opposition research, inflated user metrics, and that was just for 2018. Since then, at least according to a blog post by a group of anonymous Facebook employees, things have gotten much worse on a number of existing and new fronts, from increasingly vocal charges of institutional racism to an employee virtual walkout protesting the company's continued refusal to police political speech, no matter how inflammatory, to intermittent advertisers' boycotts. Tuesday's hearing stood out for the strong performance of the witness whistleblower Francis Haugen. The former Facebook employee turned whistleblower shared her vast knowledge of the internal workings of the company through both her previous work and the thousands of pages of internal documents she reviewed and provided to lawmakers. And she explained the technical workings of Facebook's platform in a polished and uncomplicated way, citing real-world examples of the harm that they can and do cause. In a call with reporters following the hearing, Subcommittee Chairman Richard Blumenthal said he found Haugen's remarks compelling and credible. Francis Haugen wants to fix Facebook, not burn it to the ground, he said. Indeed, that may be one of her biggest assets as a reliable witness. She repeatedly told lawmakers that she was there there because she believes in Facebook's potential for good. If the company is able to address its serious issues, Haugen even said she would work for Facebook again if given the chance. She also said she's against breaking up the entity, instead emphasizing collaborative solutions with Congress, or else these systems are going to continue to exist and be dangerous, even if they're broken up. Haugen suggested that Congress give Facebook the chance to, quote, declare moral bankruptcy and we can figure out these things together, unquote. Asked to clarify what she meant by moral bankruptcy, Haugen said she envisioned the process like a financial bankruptcy, where there's a mechanism to forgive them and move forward. Facebook is stuck in a feedback loop that, unfortunately, they can't get out of. They need to admit that they did something wrong, and they need to help solve these problems, and that's what moral bankruptcy is, she said. When the experts weighed in on what went wrong at Facebook, they overwhelmingly pointed to its culture. Specifically, the story goes that its cult-like culture has contributed to the company's well-publicized wave of scandals by disgorging dissent and using peer review to artificially encourage collaboration. Can you cure a toxic work culture? In short, yes, you can, but it's going to take a lot of hard work and consistency. How do you know if your culture is toxic? Your people will tell you. Deadlines regularly slip, employee turnover is high, the rumor mill is active, people openly complain about the company, and you always plan to have a meeting after that meeting. 
In toxic cultures, information is not shared. People do not feel emotionally and psychologically safe, and ultimately the business suffers. Rebuilding trust is possible. Steady, consistent focus in the right places will help you gain traction and support of your efforts to be better. It's clear that all is not well at Facebook. Indeed, one might even argue the culture is sick. Well, how bad is the virus? The company is facing a culture crisis that is difficult to contain. The narrative about the company is to an alarming extent being shaped by outside forces, meaning that the company has lost control that it may have had over any culture-driven leader would like. Culture is the key competitive advantage the CEO can have full control over, but in Facebook's case, it almost feels as if it's spinning out of control. This case presents a warning to entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs everywhere. When company culture is neglected, tiny hairline cracks start to appear. They do not seem important at the time, but if neglected, those cracks eventually become gaping holes. Facebook has a mammoth task on its hands on multiple fronts. Its culture should be one of its key priorities right now, and if your culture spins out of control, it's incredibly difficult to get it back. Trust, once broken, is not easily gained. Whether the current leadership at Facebook is up to the task remains an open question. This is not to imply that anyone should feel sorry for Facebook or that it's without fault. To borrow from a superhero movie, with great power comes great responsibility, and the bar for Facebook should be significantly higher. But in designing optimal regulatory solutions, both the advantages and dangers of scale must be considered. And in the meantime, users and advertisers who do not seem inclined to give Facebook credit for making an important but necessarily imperfect contribution to the problem of malicious use of the Internet, regardless of how much the company invests in their efforts. The good news for Facebook, or whatever alternative social mechanic succeeds, is that the business does not rely simply on the fly world of network effects. If it did, recent events would have ensured a swift exodus of users to any number of competing social platforms. Instead, the complex web of mutually reinforcing competitive advantages that bolster the network effects have brought Facebook something priceless. In the otherwise mercilessly competitive digital jungle, Facebook has the time to get it right. So how do you fix a company with a toxic work environment? First off, accept accountability. One of the first steps is for executive leaders to hold themselves fully accountable for the current state of the culture and the experience of employees. Leaders must transparently describe how the current state culture negatively impacts customers, employees, and its overall business. Then they must also start to describe a future state of how people acting in new ways will ultimately benefit those same groups. Culture flows from the top down, so the more quickly leaders understand that employees don't create the mess and middle managers can't fix it, the faster they can get to the next step of doing something about it. Own the problem and commit to doing the right thing. This is the easiest part for most companies. Step two, do what you say you're going to do. And if you're not committed to doing it, then don't say you're going to do it. This is not the time to make big promises. It's a time to return to the basics of credibility, respect, and fairness. Rebuilding trust is all about consistency, and this shows up most observedly in your actions. All leaders have to understand that they will be operating under a microscope 
with their actions being evaluated and people waiting for a return to, quote, business as usual, unquote. They are also waiting for the signals that you are changing. Most frequently, companies realign their actions around their purpose. Maybe it's a return to your values or working on a new set. In any case, you must find something and commit to it. Finally, make a commitment to communicating with your organization. Communication is always key in any transformation, but when you're rebuilding trust in a toxic culture, transparent communication is the right place to focus. Transparency engenders trust, particularly transparency around where you are making a progress and where you are falling short. Sharing how you make decisions is an excellent way to demonstrate your commitment to a new way. This is where your middle and frontline leaders can get involved. Activate your leaders by asking them to share how they're making decisions and how they're being more transparent than before, giving more information and more context to people. When executives consistently articulate the how and the why behind their decisions, you invite people into the process of reshaping the culture. If done consistently and honestly, these three things will give you the firm foundation needed to begin to start rebuilding trust. Here is what we don't know. Can Facebook rebuild trust? Will this internet behemoth be able to chart a new cultural course? Or more likely, will they follow the breadcrumbs left in the forest by Wells Fargo and continue their path toward remaining a serial recidivist? Only time will tell. Tom? Jay, you've laid out a way for them to do so. Any thoughts on whether they're inclined to do so? Well, you know me, I'm a little Pollyanna, always very optimistic. Um, I think there is a lot of momentum with um, Ms. Haugen's appearance on uh, 60 Minutes and with the information that's just been let, uh, you know, shared with the Wall Street Journal and other uh, publications. So I think now is the time, and if we can co- coalesce some ground support to start asking for answers and coming up with workable solutions, uh, there could be a path forward. They certainly have the scope and they certainly have the resources. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jay? Well, I, I have uh, two thoughts, really. Um, first, I, I am very interested in Frances Hogan, the Facebooker whistleblower, the Facebook whistleblower. Her complaint to the SEC about uh, whistleblower, basically seeking whistleblower protections, I've read her complaints, which have been posted online. And the thing that is most interesting is she is saying that the Facebook has been misleading investors with its statements. But when you read her complaints, they're not actually about Facebook has misled on revenue or sales agreements or sham vendors or anything that we in the compliance world are used to thinking like, okay, this is what we complain to the SEC about. Um, Her complaints are all about Facebook's ethical practices are misleading this way. They said that they would apply this level of scrutiny to everybody, but they're the secret club of famous people who don't have scrutiny. It's All of her complaints are that the Facebook has been misleading investors about its ethical priorities. Is that actually something that the SEC will then take an enforcement action on? I'm quite curious to see that. And a second, I have a broader picture or question about Facebook. And I think Facebook is in a lot of trouble, not financially, because Facebook makes oodles of money. I am confident they will continue to make oodles of money. But from a governance and strategic perspective, 
it is not fun being Facebook right now, and I don't see how that's going to change. And let me float a question that somebody somewhere, please answer this for me, because I don't know what it is here. What does Mark Zuckerberg bring to Facebook anymore? Because I know that his technical chops must be formidable, and he was instrumental to Facebook when it started 20 years ago. But these days, he seems to be more of a hindrance for Facebook than a help. I can't imagine that strategically his choices here, you know, look where they've brought the company now. The company's you know, one of the most reviled in the world. Nobody likes Facebook. Senate Republicans and Democrats agree on not liking Facebook. They don't agree on anything, and they've agreed on this. That's really something. Um, but at the same time, like you're not going to dump Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. He's their biggest shareholder. I believe he's chairman of the board. I know he's on the board. He's the CEO. He's the longtime CEO. So you can't get rid of him. But again, somebody somewhere explain, what is the value he's bringing to Facebook and its investors right now? Because he has built this empire of deception and immorality or amorality. There's no thought into it at all. And I don't know what the answer is going to be short of getting rid of him in a major overhaul, except you can't get rid of him. And like, what are we going to do if you're Facebook? I don't know. But they've, like I said, financially, they're probably going to be fine. And I know that counts for a lot. But still, there is this reality that, man, it must not be fun to be Facebook these days. Karen, um, on another podcast, you and I discussed Activision in the context of a uh, SEC uh, if not investigation, at least an inquiry into their uh, employment practices. And we posed the question of, is that something the SEC could or should be looking at? Is is this Facebook situation similar or are ethics and compliance obligations that are stated in uh, public documents something that the SEC uh, should be looking at? I think it's a, a great question. And I saw that analogy you know, just in in listening to what Matt was saying about whether or not the culture here is enough to give rise to something that's problematic to the SEC. Just what what Haugen is alleging is happening, you're right, might not necessarily go straight to the bottom line, but has to do with what the culture is. And so it is similar to the Activision, I think, situation where there's a toxic work culture that's been alleged uh, and the SEC got involved And certain people, um, you know, certainly academics have suggested that maybe that's not the role of the SEC to kind of be stepping in almost like the EEOC, like an employment, you know, uh, watchdog here in terms of the employment conditions. But I think you're right, Tom, when companies write things in their filings that say things that are, we have a great culture, we have um, one of the best places to work, which was the situation at least for Activision, when you can pull that statement up out of their Ks or any of their other filings, you know, in theory, that does open the door for the SEC to inquire about the fact that that is not a true statement in a public filing. I mean, it does mean that the SEC maybe is able to investigate everything, even sort of general boilerplate. But we saw that even in the Goldman Sachs case about that had more to do with uh, a class action, but it was basically based on boilerplate, that we are a compliant company. And so you see people starting to piggyback on small statements in these filings that include just general, this is what our culture's like, and if there's some indication that that's not the case then maybe there is a, a, a road for the SEC to walk down to, to investigate that. That is, again, sort of seemingly outside of what typically the SEC should be looking at. 
Uh, all very interesting. So thanks, uh, Jay. Matt, uh, I think there was a recent speech by uh, the SEC Chief of Enforcement that intrigued you. Uh, if I've got that right, what was it and what so intrigued you? Yes, you do. This is, uh, I guess, sort of breaking news for the Everything Compliance podcast because this speech only happened last uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, what happened was the SEC's new director of enforcement, a man named Grubir Grewal, uh, Mr. Grewal gave his first speech as enforcement director, and he talked. He, he was speaking to an audience of broker dealers, uh, mostly about broker dealer regulations that we don't need to get into for the broader compliance uh, audience. But he did spend a fair bit of his time talking about corporate uh, penalties and monetary penalties the SEC might impose on corporate offenders on top of any disgorgement of ill-gotten gains or interest uh, that you might wind up also paying. And Tom, I was really intrigued because Mr. Grewal was basically saying that Corporate penalties will need to go up because clearly they are not deterring misconduct. And he is echoing other statements about the SEC's penalty policy that we've already talked about this year from Commissioner Carolyn Crenshaw. Now, I have long said that Ms. Crenshaw is talking about policies not just to hear herself speak. Listen to what she is saying. She is sketching out big strategic ideas about more aggressive use of penalties, and I get that. But when it's the division of enforcement director, like Grubir Grual, now it's real. These are going to be his staffers are sitting across from you at the negotiating table or Zoom call or whatever it might be these days. But this is a much more practical case-by-case -case look at how enforcement and monetary penalties are going to affect companies. And so what is he saying? Uh, he was emphasizing that one of the big goals of monetary penalties is to deter misconduct. So that is both deterring the company in question from doing it again, but also deterring other companies who basically are going to say, well, we don't want to be like those guys. Let's not do this unseemly thing, whatever it might be. So the penalties should be, A, more in step with the severity of the offense, but B, also be significant enough to deter future incidents of this misconduct. So I'm wondering, are we going to start seeing larger penalties? Actually, I'm not worried, wondering about that. I'm confident we're going to see larger penalties. But more than that, are we going to see larger and larger penalties over time? Because if the same sort of incidents are happening, but the monetary penalties that they've been applying, or, you know, they're not deterring uh, misconduct, then clearly the penalties need to go up even more. That's basically what they are saying. And I can give you a direct quote here from Mr. Grewal that um, he was saying, if a firm or, or even if a firm or individual hasn't offended before, if they violate a law or rule for which the SEC has previously and publicly charged others in their industry, it may be appropriate for penalties or other remedies to increase in response to the lack of deterrence. So, okay, what does that really mean in practice? It could really mean, if you are a compliance officer, that if you see your rival get a $10 million penalty in 2022 for an FCPA action, and then you find out your company is committing basically the same sort of offense 
you might get in 2024 a $15 million penalty. Well, how come I'm getting more? Because you didn't take the lessons that your rival did when they got slapped in 2022. It didn't deter anybody. That's the sort of dynamic that I think people need to start thinking about. If the SEC, and I am confident the Justice Department is going to say this too, uh, if the SEC is going to start thinking of penalties as the means to deter future misconduct, then constant perennial problems, such as the FCPA, such as insider trading, um, such as any number of other issues that we could probably think of. If those things are going to keep happening, then the penalties are going to keep going up. And I can't help but think of the Justice Department's guidelines on evaluating corporate compliance programs that they last revised in 2020, where the Justice Department guidelines specifically said, look around at what is going on in your industry. And if you see others getting uh, an enforcement action for conduct that you might feasibly commit sometime, you should amend your own compliance program to make sure you're not. You know, read the room, see what's happening to others, and make sure that you're doing your best not to fall down that same path. And now we have Grubir Grual saying, we're going to enforce penalties to uh, do pretty much the same thing. So there's going to be, I think, a strong incentive for companies to look around at what is happening with enforcement and then go back to your boards or your CEOs and say, we could have this happen to us too. And in our case, the penalties are going to be even greater if we didn't take this lesson here and take it to heart right now that some other poor bastard in our field just got taken to the woodshed for. So that I think that it is a very interesting speech from uh, Director Grual, and it's very much in step with what Caroline Crenshaw has been saying for a while about more aggressive use of policies, larger use of policies, make sure poli uh, penalties, make sure that penalties are doing their job, which is to deter future misconduct. There's a lot of implications for compliance officers there. So dig up his speech and give it a read and take it to heart. Karen, do you have a question for Matt? Well, he addressed it a little bit when you mentioned that DOJ is probably piggybacking on this as well. But I was just had a question about whether or not you thought that speech squares with sort of this now somewhat longstanding idea of self-reporting gets somewhat almost of a presumed declination, at least under FCPA and um, actions. Are those things uh, are those things in keeping, or, or is there, are these those sort of um, contradictory incentives? Grewal talked about the cooperation and self-disclosure a bit in his speech, too. And he basically said that those are going to be the table stakes. If you don't do those things, forget it. You're not going to get any credit. And I think that the penalties part will therefore be an even more unpleasant conversation. But, for example, with cooperation, he did say that doing what the SEC asks of you, that is not cooperation. That is doing what the SEC asks of you. Cooperation is really supposed to be, yay, we are going to root out this misconduct, and that's awesome. Like, there's going to have to be a, your heart and spirit are going to have to be in cooperating to get to the bottom of this mess and rectifying the underlying issues. And I don't see how self-disclosure isn't part of that. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't think that self-disclosure and cooperation, fulsome uh, cooperation, and energetic and enthusiastic. Like, they are obviously going to have to be part and parcel of this if you don't want a monetary penalty. Um, and you know, I think that most often will come up with the SEC, uh, with FCPA violations, where 
you know, uh, I remember the Republican commissioner from several years ago, Michael Piwowar, who is a conservative Republican with conservative views on SEC penalties. He always said he had no problem with SEC penalties, specifically for the FCPA, because that's the law, and it's disclosed to investors that, you know, if we violate this, we're probably going to have penalties. Like, it all ties together that for the FCPA in particular, and I know that's the most common issue that our audience tends to worry about, like, you're going to have to get on board with rooting everything out and doing the best you can, or else the penalties are going to be greater. And they're going to keep getting more and more great as time passes, unless the industry collectively really reads the room and gets on the ball with good compliance programs. I, I wouldn't quick follow up, actually, Matt, and that is... I don't think the anyone who's sort of in compliance or in this sort of space of FCPA would say that FCPA penalties to date have been minor. I mean, we've only seen sort of the skyrocketing in the last just couple decades. So, I, I mean, I'm curious if this is a shift in your mind or if it's more just we're going to keep going down this path of ramping those up. Um, I think, you know, sort of since the early 2000s, companies do have compliance programs, and yet the penalties are have been increasing. So I, I'm just curious if you think this is a shift or not. Broadly, the penalty policy is shifting. I think for FCPA, that's a very good point that it isn't going to feel, it hasn't felt fun for a while. It's going to feel even less fun now, but that's not news. But what Crenshaw in particular had been saying is that the idea that the company should only pay up whatever harm you can demonstrate to investors and disgorge the ill-gotten profits. And she basically saying, no, no, no. Even if you can't disprove that, even if you can't quantify and prove what that harm is, if you break the law, you're going to have to pay something. And that idea that we are going to use monetary penalties more often and that they will be larger. So that could very easily, I see it, it may be more in insider trading, where you can quantify how much money did these people gain by insider trading or an accounting fraud. You could quantify how much revenue did they get through um, you know, some sort of accounting gimmick. All of that disgorgement is still going to have to happen, and then there's going to be more penalties. And a lot of Republicans would say, let's just keep it to what harm was imposed on investors. Crenshaw's saying, no, let's keep that part, and then remember, somebody somewhere broke the law. There has to be a punishment. That's a penalty, and so that comes on top. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a novel idea with the FCPA, but it probably is going to feel novel for a lot of people in a lot of other types of misconduct. Certainly when you look at the kind of loosey-goosey Trump administration approach to policies. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious to see how that shakes out. Uh, we both looked at the WPP FCPA enforcement action recently announced by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and I think we both commented on the amount of the penalty as opposed to any profit disgorgement. Uh, do you think that uh, any of the comments or thoughts, rather, you've had around this speech from yesterday came into play in the WPP case, or, number one, was that really too early in the Biden administration to have that influence, uh, and or um, was the conduct of WPP itself so egregious that it led to the higher penalty? Well, I, I suspect that the WTPP penalty, which was $19 million in total, but 40% of that was a penalty. I think $8 million out of 19 I think that is a precursor of what we will see. Um, you know, like, 
what WPP did, it was really bad. I mean, they had red flags flying all over the place that they turned a blind eye to for years, and big, precise roadmap red flags of exactly what they should have been looking at that they ignored. So the misconduct was egregious, but the amount of money that was gained was not. So, you know, you have to try and sit down and do the calculus there about what was disgorgement, what was appropriate. If you saw a really large profit gain, but not necessarily as egregious ignoring of the red flags, would that result in a smaller penalty? Like, I don't know. We could game that out. But I do think that WPP is a sign of things to come, yes. All right. Well, once again, welcome to our newest panelist, Karen Woody. Uh, Karen, I've been wanting to ask you about the Wild West of cryptocurrency, and I was trying to think of an analogy, perhaps in my professional career, uh, where we seem to be at really the starting point of some regulatory dialogue. And at first I thought about the internet, then I thought about sort of the dot, late 90s dot com, but I'm not sure those are appropriate analogies. Uh, but what's the Wild West of cryptocurrency? Where are the regulators or where do you see any of this going? Hi, thanks for having me again. I'm happy to be here. Um, this is great. Uh, I will say... In terms of crypto, the Wild West of crypto is a saying, actually, that Chairman Gensler of the SEC coined himself. I mean, maybe not coined that, but he mentioned that in a speech about six weeks ago. And he still keeps mentioning that, of saying, you know, this does feel different. This feels new. Regulators are trying to get their arms around this uh, entire industry that is now over, I think, $2 trillion, um, in assets that are being traded in these sort of online cryptocurrency platforms. Um, and so we've had um, a number of issues that have come into play when we're trying to get our arms around this. And that is, the first is, you know, which regulator is should be taking um, the lead on this? And a lot of that turns on really what is the ultimate question about cryptocurrencies, and that is whether or not those are considered securities. Um, and then, of course, when we decide whether something is a security or not, or the, the calculus that we have to look at for that is an old test that comes from a 1946 case um, that was the SEC versus Howey. And out of that case, you establish, we've established sort of the criteria of what it means to meet the um, uh, definition of a security. And if something does meet that definition of a security, then it needs to be registered with uh, the SEC. And so how or, or whether or not um, these initial coin offerings or other sort of um, products that are done in the crypto sphere meet that definition is something people are still trying to wrestle with. The previous chair of the SEC very much said he thought all cryptocurrencies were um, securities and should be registered and regulated by the SEC. Also in the mix is the CFTC, as well as others, the Fed, the Treasury, the Office of the Control of the Currency. There's a number of um, regulatory agencies that have a bit of their hand in trying to get um, either sort of jurisdictional authority over this or just some understanding of what's going on. Um, and so Chairman Gensler was just, again, this week in, in Congress and um, trying to, again, double down on whether or not the SEC, uh, the SEC should have a role in this. And his you know, major push is that uh, investors will be hurt because of this um, unregulated area of cryptocurrency. So, again, he's sort of saying we need to protect investors against 
fraud and manipulation that occurs um, in that space. And so he mentioned that he, you know, there are certain um, areas that he's asked his staff to create uh, rules around or certain regulations. And the projects that he has his staff working on are um, obviously everything that deals with the offer and sale of these tokens. Also, general regulation of the trading platforms that they're traded on. Um, Another area that's related to cryptocurrencies are this idea of stable coins, so coins that are pegged to um, a a currency that is not a cryptocurrency. Uh, And so we've seen, again, all these different sort of financial products or um, coins, and people are trying to figure out how, you know, what definition they fall under, and so how then should they be regulated. Um, Gensler obviously is very much pro-regulation. But as always, we've seen some pushback from others, notably even one of the other commissioners. The Republican Commissioner Pierce has very much pushed back against this and argued that, you know, there shouldn't be as much regulation or SEC involvement in this space. Um, We also this week had uh, a, a member of Congress from, I believe, Minnesota, who is the co chair of a group of lawmakers who have uh, a group that is dedicated to looking at blockchain and decentralized finance issues that um, cryptocurrency falls under. And he's very much, again, trying to push back against this idea that there should be increased oversight. Um, And in his, ironically, I think the pushback is to say that if we have increased oversight, then that will hurt investors because that will automatically drop the value of these things once people realize they'll get regulated. To me, that seems like a bit of a circular argument, um, but that, that's certainly the, the sort of the landscape of where we are with that. And of course, there have been very notable um, public sort of uh, disputes, we should say, I guess, between the SEC and major players in the crypto space. Just, uh, I guess now a year ago or so, we had the SEC bring enforcement action against Ripple. Um, and then now we have sort of the very uh, high-profile um, situation of Coinbase. Um, and Coinbase is uh, one of the cryptocurrency exchanges where people buy and sell securities. Um, Coinbase is unique because it actually is publicly traded. It went public earlier this year, but recently um, announced plans to um, uh, have a product called Lend, which would have essentially been a cryptocurrency lending program in which they would pay interest on loans. And that very much fell under the definition of a security, and the SEC um, threatened to sue them over that product. And as a result of a pretty high-profile public spat almost on Twitter, the Coinbase decided to pull that product and and walk away from it. They have announced that they're canceling that product for now. One thing I I think was an interesting article I saw this week that was actually in the New Yorker, and the argument on that piece sort of um, suggested that there maybe is uh, almost an angle on the lack of clarity being to the SEC's advantage, meaning that once we do have more clear regulations about what counts as a security, what will be regulated, how that regulation will happen, that actually will produce sort of more loopholes or, you know, this very much mobile new technology shifting uh, to get around those regulations. So the argument was something like the vagueness maybe is something that is uh, behooves the agency right now. 
that ironically was Coinbase's beef with the SEC. They they said, hey, we're trying to comply. We're doing what we can, but we don't have any guidance on what that means. Uh, and, and so the, it was an interesting argument, um, like I said in an article this week, that said maybe that's sort of not a bug, but that's the that's a feature. <laughs> so um, that's, I think, where we are. I, it'll be anyone's guess how much traction we have because um, we have – you know, lawmakers actually on both sides of the aisle pushing back somewhat against too much regulation of this. Um, but at the same time, obviously, there are a number of people who are very concerned because this is a huge, huge area. of um, There's a ton of assets on it and arguably a lot of people who lose money very quickly in this space, which is why the SEC does very much have an interest in uh, stepping in and, and regulating it. So, Karen, has there been a call for um, commentators or outside parties to either assist or, as I said, comment, have academicians such as yourself or others who focus on the SEC? Are, are, is your group being used as a resource? Would that even be typical from the SEC, or would they develop their own regulations uh, internally and, and post them for comment or something like that? Oh, I think, I mean, there have been a number of academics even who have, um, testified in Congress, and I think are very much involved um, in trying to figure out how to regulate these things. It's interesting because the article suggested that you know so much of this is such a new, hot um, technology, which I think is the analogy to what you said before about the the rise of the internet. That regulators are often on their back feet because they're not sort of the the most innovative. And so, of course, I think they're looking for guidance for people who maybe are more closely following this, who maybe are in the industry or um, certainly are studying the industry because they, uh, I think, are trying to get some understanding of even what's going on. So there certainly are a number of people. This is a place where we've seen a lot of lobbying. Um, There's uh, entire, there's now a, um, you know, I think it's Chamber of Digital Commerce has been set up by, I I believe it's co-founded by Mick Mulvaney, who used to be a a Republican congressman. So, but like I said, there's also people from the other side of the aisle who are joining that to make sure that that cryptocurrency is, one, still available and easy to trade. And maybe there'll be some, some sort of compromise or middle road where that still allows ease of trading, but with additional regulatory guardrails. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Karen? Well, a comment that might turn into a question by the end, but I do think that the one regulator, regulatory agency we haven't mentioned yet that I think is important for a lot of listeners is the Justice Department, because we have to remember that a big reason that people use crypto is to pay ransomware or do other not nice things. And the Mm. Justice Department, quite rightly, does not like this at all. And when the Biden administration talks about cracking down on cybersecurity and improving cybersecurity, that is inextricably linked with the reality that a lot of this is financed through crypto. And I am curious how the Justice Department or other regulators might try to force more transparency into the crypto world. Who are these people? What transactions are we doing? Where is that money going? How do you square that need for transparency and clarity into the transactions with crypto's 
I don't know, its image, at least, of being this libertarian Shangri-La where nobody knows what you're doing and the Fed isn't there and you're not paying taxes on anything. And I, I don't dabble in crypto. It seems to me to be an Ayn Rand novel gone wrong. Um, but for a lot of people, what the Justice Department wants for a cybersecurity perspective and what they want from this sort of libertarian free-to-do-whatever-you-want perspective, like those are antithetical. And I'm very curious how that will get mm. squared. And that is something a lot of compliance officers should watch because you might fall victim to ransomware or you might start seeing your customers demand that they want to do transactions with crypto. And I don't know how that's all going to work. I don't, Karen, I don't know if you have any ideas on that. But to me, I, I keep coming back to the cybersecurity implications of using crypto. Or that's going to be huge and enormous and can't be ignored. I think that's exactly right. Um, and interesting, I think that was a little bit almost of even Ripple's argument back to the SEC and an interesting twist when they were um, uh, investigated for having their token be considered um, uh, security. They argued that, oh, actually, no, this is a currency, which would make it subject to the Fed and to control the currency and even things like FinCEN or, so the, you know, the other sort of money laundering or banking regulatory agencies. And that was almost their argument against why the SEC shouldn't be in the room. Um, but and so I say that only because there's no reason that those other agencies can't also step in. Um, and so the definition of a security hinging on whether the SEC is the one there uh, I think is important, but that is not exclusive of, of other agencies stepping in to ensure that there's not fraud, regardless of whether we call that a security or not, or there's not money laundering issues or other cybersecurity issues. That certainly always, I would hope, would fall under the jurisdiction of the Justice Department, whether or not we say these things are securities or not. So I hope that the Justice Department certainly has a finger on the pulse here as well because, I mean, again, it's, it's such – it can be open season on the nefarious uses of, these, of, of this money that it seems antithetical to what, you know, what we're doing in every other space to make sure that those uh, – you know, that's not, you know, money from ill-gotten gains or used for human trafficking or some, some other terrible thing. So I would hope that that – uh, the role of the SEC um, isn't dispositive of whether the All justice. All right, lady and gentlemen, we are now to our fan favorite sections of shoutouts and or rants. Before we get to shoutouts and rants, we're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jay Rosen. 40 to nothing over the Houston Texans. 35 to nothing over the Dolphins. 43 to 21 over the Washington football team. Uh, You know me as being a big Boston homer, but I want to direct everyone's eyes to the late game on Sunday where Josh Allen will take on Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, and I say that's the preview of the AFC title game. And uh, as Boomer says, nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills, so this goes out to you, Lisa Fine. It's looking good. Let's hope you can hold it up for the rest of the season. Matt Kelly. Shout out to, uh, of all people, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I guess we're going to keep going with the sports metaphors for now. Uh, And what Kareem, or Mr. Abdul-Jabbar, I suppose I should say, uh, his recent essay that he wrote about getting vaccinated and vaccination requirements for the NBA, which I thought was spot on, very well written, um, he rightfully stepped up and said, of course the NBA players should be vaccinated, uh, and that while there are some holdouts, among the 200, 250-ish number of actual players in the NBA, the NBA itself employs thousands and thousands of people, and there are going to be many others who attend NBA games or who work in concession stands or something else. Like the NBA's extended enterprise is many, many, many thousands of people who all might have some exposure to this COVID virus because there are a few knuckle-draggers in the NBA who don't want to get vaccinated. And that is ridiculous. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar took them on head-on in this wonderful essay that he wrote a few weeks ago. And uh, I especially liked his line about one of the anti-vax holdouts, Kyrie Irving, uh, where he basically said, the NBA will survive without Kyrie Irving's, Irving's services. And I could not agree more that this is exactly the position the NBA should take. And I applaud all of the teams that have been driving vaccination requirements for their players, for the staff, for everybody else. Uh, My inner Celtics fan, it is a little bit difficult for me to keep on plugging away for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar since I remember when he was a Laker in the 80s and I used to hate him then, but he is an excellent human being now. And his latest essay in favor of COVID vaccinations just keeps proving that. Karen Woody. I have to uh, (laughs) diverge from the sports analogy because mine is the sheer tourism plug it's a it's a shout out to right now i'm sitting in a beautiful place in right outside of brown county indiana where i'm here for a wedding and the trees are turning and it's a spectacular place and a beautiful park um i have nothing good to say about the colts even though i'm here in indiana so i won't that's that's all i have to say sports related but it's a beautiful place, and so, again, not a place many people might frequent unless they have ties to Indiana University or, or elsewhere, but I'm giving a shout-out to this spectacular place in the world. Well, I'm going to go in a different direction, although I suppose you could say it's sports-related. 
And my rant is about Waller County, Texas. Mm. If you don't know where Waller County is, it's the county adjacent to Harris County, which is where Houston is, one county west. Waller County used to be a pretty rural county, uh, but in Texas, because of our oil money, we have great county roads. And for 25 years, Waller County has been the place where cyclists do training rides, and uh, particularly on the weekend. Well, uh, the Waller Countyites, the people who live there, do not like cyclists on their roads, and they have harassed and otherwise made riding there uh, considerably more difficult over the years. And I have personal experience in this, so I will relate that in a moment. But on September 9th of this year, a 16-year-old driving a diesel pickup truck attempted to, quote, roll coal over six riders. And what that means is you blow diesel smoke in their face. Um, while trying to do that, he picked up his cell phone, and then he managed to run over those six riders. Two were life flighted out, two went by ambulance, and two didn't have to go, uh, they were able to go to the hospital on their own. But that's not my rant against that idiot. My rant is against Waller County, because Waller County came out there and allegedly investigated. They let the kid go, they didn't interview him, they have not charged him with anything not so much as a ticket for uh, negligent driving. And here's the personal part. On September 28th of 2009, about a mile from where this event happened, I got taken out by a Hummer in Waller County. When the police came, what did they give him a ticket for? No insurance. So to Waller County, the most pathetic law enforcement group. Uh, they've yet to charge him. They've said they can't see anything wrong with uh, what happened. It just, you know, six people got run over by a truck. I guess it happens every day in Waller County. Jonathan Armstrong. Well, I have a shout out and I know it's a couple of weeks ago now, but I think I'm still fairly joyous about the achievements of Emma Raducanu. So for those of you who don't know the story, this is a tennis player who was born in Toronto to a Romanian father and a Chinese mother. She moved to the UK when she was two, and she recently beat Leila Fernandez to win the US Open. Not only did she win it, she won it as a qualifier, obviously not seeded, and she didn't drop a set. There'll be a future trivia quiz question, I'm sure, as to what was the only other tournament she won prior to winning the US Open. And anyone who listens to this podcast can get ahead in that compliance quiz question when it appears by remembering that her previous victory was at the Deccan Gymkhana Club in Pune, India, where she won about $25,000 versus the, uh, some say, 20, 25, $30 million she'll win from winning the US Open in terms of the prize money and the sponsorship and the appearance fees uh, as a result. 
in one tournament, she went from 338 in the world to 23rd. And I think there's some interesting lessons for CCOs here as well. She's obviously an aspirational figure in what she did in this tournament. And I think it tells us all that there are moments in our life when we need to be fearless. She's talked about her fearlessness. She's talked about the fact that she'd already got her return flights booked after the qualifying tournament, but that she thought that she had nothing to lose. She's talked about living in the moment, which I think is a great lesson for us. You know, sometimes we have compliance crises where we don't know how it's going to pan out in the next 14 days, the next month, the next year, the next three years. And I can remember a colleague of mine saying in the middle of one of these crises, you've only got to have a three day plan in a crisis. Don't try and plan ahead too much. And I think this is, uh, again, what Emma's told us, that living in the moment is sometimes the best policy. And then the third area I think that this uh, that Emma teaches us is you've got to focus on what you can control. You can't control your opponent. You can't control what your opponent is going to do. You can influence that by the shots that you play and your own strategy. But if you focus on your strategy and your game, you've got a greater chance of success. So shout out Emma Raducanu. So uh, that concludes this episode of Everything Compliance. I can't wait till our happy gang gets together again for another session. Thanks to everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. As I mentioned, Everything Compliance is now award-winning Everything Compliance. So I'd like to thank the Everything Compliance gang for their great work. We have a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we take a look at compliance using the social engineering tool of design thinking to help improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of, of a compliance program. So check out Design Thinking in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us in a couple of weeks where the Everything Compliance Gang returns on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.